You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Thank you guys for choosing to be part of the Hazard Ground community. Before we get to this week's episode, a couple of notes to get to. Want to remind you guys about our promotion with Amazon. This is the best thing ever. You want to help out vets and veterans organizations. This is so simple. Go to our webpage, hazardground.com, and click on the Amazon link. Do all of your normal Amazon shopping. Get stuff for home, for around the house, for school, for business, whatever it is. Cost you nothing. You just go to thehazardground.com, click on the Amazon link, and we donate a portion of the proceeds that we get back from Amazon to one of the amazing veterans organizations that we featured on the show. It's the easiest way for you to help out. Again, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon link, and do your normal Amazon shopping. You'll be helping out veterans. This week's episode brought to you by our newest sponsor, Cabela, the world's foremost outfitter of hunting, fishing, and outdoor gear. Cabela provides everyone from the expert hunter and angler to the family looking to get away on a weekend camping trip with the right gear at the best prices. So if you're looking to outfit your next big adventure or just looking for some great gear to use around the house cabin, go to our sponsors page, hazardground.com slash sponsors. That's hazardground.com slash sponsors and click on the Cabela's banner. You have to go through the sponsors page if you want to help out the show and make the most of your next outdoor adventure. Also, click on the Knife Country USA banner on the sponsors page. Same one, hazardground.com slash sponsors. Use the code HAZARD1, that's hazard and the number one, at checkout, and you'll get 15% off your entire order. Knife Country USA has the largest selection of knives, cutlery, and accessories on the internet with over 30,000 models from over 500 manufacturers. Knife Country USA is confident they've got the perfect item for you. In addition to a tremendous selection, no other company can beat Knife Country USA's commitment to exceptional customer service. Their owner personally guarantees it. One last final note, remind you guys to follow us on all the social media sites, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Look for us everywhere. Stay connected to the show. Keep up with what we're doing and give us feedback wherever you can, including on those iTunes reviews. We need those the most. And now on to the podcast. This week's guest, a former NCAA Division I swimmer, West Point graduate, four-time Ironman athlete, former Army captain and intelligence officer, who dealt with all the scars of combat that you don't see, uh, the mental scars that that are left behind. Her name is Carolyn Furdeck, and she joins us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Carolyn, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. So, uh, look, we have dealt a lot with the kind of uh, silent, you know, the the hidden scars of combat and battle, PTSD and things of the like going forward. But yours is a very unique story, and we definitely want to hear all about it. But we always start back at the beginning as to how you got in the Army. Correct. Yeah. Um, well, of course, uh, uh, from my past, I'm actually a third generation female officer. Um, you don't uh, see that very often, at least not uh, when I was back in the military. My mother served for 28 years and my grandmother served. Um, so I knew at some point that I always wanted to serve in the military. I just didn't know how. And um, my junior year of high school, I received a letter from uh, the United States Military Academy asking me to come and swim for their swim team. Um, I sadly went to my mother and, and was very curious why a military academy would be recruiting me. I had my uh, experience or views of movies and television shows at the time was that military academies was where parents sent their delinquents. Yes. So I was uh, quite confused, um, but she quickly uh, explained um, uh, the purpose and uh, what the academy was. And uh, so that's kind of how my career got started. Was your mother an officer as well, or was she enlisted? She was an officer. Uh, She was a nurse in the Army as well as my grandmother. Okay, so they they knew that side of the house as opposed to uh, just signing up and enlisting. Um, Right. When you were going through that process and you were recognizing what West Point was all about, was it something that you you grew to like, or was it one of those things that you were still a little bit hesitant on? Uh, so, I mean, you know, as, as exploring uh, college opportunities coming out of high school, um, I'd gone to other colleges and they made it very clear that um, I was either to choose a swim program or ROTC and I couldn't do both. So um, uh, while the other colleges were just as good swim programs, um, it definitely allowed me to do both uh, at the same time, both do military and swim. And what was life at the academy like for you? Was it something you embraced? Was it challenging? Was it the the, the balancing act of school, athletics, and all that? How was that for you? 
Yeah, I think uh, challenging would be an understatement. Um, <laughs> although I did uh, pretty good in high school with grades. Um, uh, it was a whole new ball game uh, at the academy. I was surrounded by geniuses, and I was definitely not one. Um, but uh, swimming offered me um, a good outlet uh, to uh, cool my heels and um, some good friendships. And uh, the military just kind of, um, uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the adventure. Um, I enjoyed the uh, learning that obviously we all do to become officers um, and to, of course, serve in the military. So um, uh, it, it was not easy by any means. Um, I'm glad that I don't have to do it again, but I would do it in a heartbeat. All right. Well, now I have to ask the one question at least the uh, Army folks are wondering. Why military intelligence? <laughs> well, actually, as it starts out, I branched engineers. Oh, okay. Um, All right. I did. I, uh, I initially had wanted to fly airplanes. Combat um, or construction engineer? Construction engineer. Okay. Right. Um, combat heavy is what they call this. Right. But uh, I initially tried to fly helicopters, and um, my, my back had uh, scoliosis, so they wouldn't let me do that. So I chose engineers um, and thoroughly enjoyed it. But um, as uh, my time progressed in the engineers, I took up the intelligence uh, position in our battalion. So I was both engineers and intelligence. All right. Now, what year did you graduate from the academy? 2000. Okay. So this was pre-9-11. So where were you when 9-11 happened? Um, I was at Fort Lewis, and uh, we were at our morning uh, uh, physical training, PT, and uh, uh, one of the soldiers came out to the formation a little late, and he said, hey, some airplanes crashed in, um, into the Twin Towers, and uh, we were all just kind of took it as just another newsreel. Um, after PT, of course, we learned uh, that it was much more, and um, uh, we then, our base was on lockdown, and uh, that's kind of where it all started for us. What did it mean to you? What was your reaction to it? Uh, I think that, you know, as when you join the military, when you sign the dotted line, you always, you know, it, it, at least for me, even before I graduated or before 9-11, it was like, well, I was always, um, I knew at some point I was going to serve. I didn't think it was going to be in war, but I was also very um, respectful of the fact that when you sign the dotted line, you're basically signing um, the fact that you may possibly die one day um, or, uh, you know, be seriously injured in combat. And that's just sort of what you were giving up or what you were honoring um, by doing the military. So uh, um, that's kind of what it all came together for me. Were a lot of people around you, your fellow soldiers, officers, leaders saying, hey, we're going to war, this is it? You know, because I know there's a certain amount of, you know, who uh, and, and, and a lot of people in the military, they, they kind of embrace that because that's what they signed up for, right? They know that the goal of the Army is to fight and win America's wars, and so you're kind of going to get that opportunity to do it. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I think that everyone around me was was pretty much prepared. And as engineers, it's a little known fact that a lot of times engineers can often be one of the first ones on the ground, either right with along with um, the infantry as we clear the lanes, uh, such as what we did in Iraq for the rest of the infantry and the armor to follow in behind us, um, or to build the airfields and build the bases that, um, you know, after the, the hasty or the foxhole bases, um, you know, basically when you start building tent cities, that's kind of when the engineers come in and and even, you know, with the foxholes, you know, we'll bring our heavy equipment in as we did for the helicopters in Iraq and um, and uh, built their base up and the berms around them for their hasty positions. OK, so uh, how quickly from 9-11, since you're at Fort Lewis, you're already at your first duty station, you completed all of your, you know, uh, Bullock or I, what do we call it? OBC? Yeah, OBC. I just got really old because I forgot that right off the top of my head. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, so you finished all that part. So you, you were at your first duty station. How quickly do things start ramping up for you as far as getting a deployment? Right. So I actually, um, I was one of the first ones to go for my base, uh, besides probably a couple of special operations forces. Um, I had finished my platoon leader time and um, kind of when you cool your heels in between uh, waiting for an XO time, you, they often send you up to battalion staff. Yeah. Um, and I begged my commander to not have to um, sit up there for a while. And if there were any opportunities to come along for individual augmentees, meaning that I would go join a unit who was already deployed and just be an engineer officer for them, that I'd jump at it. And one came about and and so I was pretty much training um, to leave for Afghanistan by January, February of 2002. And I found myself there in the desert in about May of 2002. Wow. Okay. So what did your mother say when you told her you volunteered for this? 
Uh, she said, are, are you sure about this? Um, and uh, my mother actually is, uh, my mother was a hospice nurse at one point, and she has a very morbid um, view sometimes when it comes to preparation. And um, unfortunately, my mother's way of, of dealing with every kind of stressful situation is to plan. Um, so as hospice nurses plan for death, she planned, you know, for in case anybody would come knocking at her door, uh, she wanted them to know where she was. And so um, thankfully, that plan did not have to come to fruition in my case. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So 2002 in May, you're already on the ground. The war on terror is only what, seven, eight months old at this point in time. Um, what is your first assignment and mission? Kind of what, what are you challenged with doing at this point in time? Sure. Yeah. So I joined a unit that had actually been in country since December of 2001. They were okay. one of the first ones there. I was with a civil affairs um, special forces uh, yep. unit. Um, and uh, they, our main mission was pretty much following behind the spec up guys. They were grabbing the bad guys and um, uh, setting up towns after they pulled pretty much the leaders, um, who again were the enemy, if they pulled them out of the towns, resetting them up with um, whether it be uh, medical, um, uh, political, uh, engineering, um, um, uh, schools. So we were building schools and um, building roads and uh, um, uh, building medical facilities for them. And by that, I mean that we were contracting um, the locals to do that. As an engineer officer, I was in, in charge of a lot of projects to include um, a couple of elementary schools and um, a veterinarian school. All right. So at what point in time, just in the big picture, what point in time do you transition to doing intelligence stuff or you don't? Uh, right. So that didn't actually happen until much later. Okay. Um, I, yes, it, it didn't happen on that deployment. All right. Well, and the reason I'm just trying to give the, the listeners context of, of how everything goes along, I, I mean, I guess sure. how eventful or uneventful was this first deployment? Right, so it um, in in terms of deployment, it wasn't your standard deployment in my mind. I mean, granted, I was with a special operations unit, and they deal with much smaller forces. So we lived um, on a street that we had taken over several of the homes or bought several of the homes, and um, we lived in houses. It had running water, but you definitely didn't drink it. Um, and uh, um, we lived what would be considered you know, comfortable in, in some minds. Now, granted, we had mortars, you know, coming in. I definitely had one or two instances where I found a uh, weapon placed at my chest for the enemy um, and, uh, you know, suicide bombers and, and whatnot um, in our uh, um, daily lives. But I was not living, um, you know, in a sleeping bag on the ground or on a cot or in a foxhole. Um, so that was uh, uh, the first deployment for me um, that lasted about seven months. So what's that like? What's that experience like when you are in that close quarters with the enemy? Uh, yeah. So I mean, that one alone, um, I was dealing a lot more with the locals, and so um, in my case, I had a lot of very smart uh, individuals and laborers with me who were engineers themselves. One of which had actually been trained um, in Germany as an engineer, uh, a local Afghani. And, um, he actually had, knew four different languages and uh, returned home to his country after the Taliban had pretty much been, um, uh, pushed out at least in early or late 2001 because he wanted to help rebuild his country. Um, and then, you know, sometimes just not knowing who to trust, uh, um, or not knowing, uh, necessarily all your surroundings, um, uh, that, that you could basically walk out in the street and not worry, uh, that was not a case. Um, there were several times where there was a riot that occurred because I was a female and my face wasn't covered. Um, and uh, the special ops guys and I quickly uh, retreated um, uh, as not to further rile up the crowd. But um, uh, it, it, it was a different experience than, we'll say, my second deployment to Iraq for the war. All right. Well, let me ask you about that experience, I guess how the stress level gets to you. Did it get to you on that deployment or was a lot of it just new and you kind of didn't realize how much danger you might or might not have been in certain spots? Right. Yeah. That, I was definitely young. Um, and, um, and, uh, uh, not necessarily having a, a great time, but, um, I was learning a lot and it was, the stress was not there on that first deployment. Okay. So then you come home from the first one. Uh, you said it was seven months of what that takes us to about the end of 2002. Mm -hmm. All right. Yes. What? Yeah, I came home right before Christmas in 2002. Well, that must have been nice to spend it with the family, right? Yeah, it was good. Did that kind of recharge you a little bit? It did. And um, I got to visit all family and uh, uh, prepare. Um, I had actually wanted to extend that deployment. Um, but uh, I got calls from my battalion commander towards the end of uh, that first one. And he said, look, 
the units most likely go into Iraq in 2003 for the uh, for the beginning of the war, and we need a company executive officer, and you're the perfect fit because you've been deployed, obviously, um, to uh, at least the region, and uh, you know a whole lot more than the rest of us. Um, so we'd like you to come on back and, and take over as a company executive officer. All right. So you were this was a job you actually wanted, right? Yes. At that okay. point, yes. So you, you after the holidays, you get back with the unit, you start training up. What happens? Right. So um, by the end of January, uh, we were all packed up and early February um, and uh, pretty much the month of February, we were deploying and we found ourselves um, in uh, 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 just across the border um, in Kuwait, um, uh, waiting for the uh, obviously everything to kick off for the war in Iraq. Um, and so that uh, basically um, just uh, training up. Uh, we had dozers that were specially equipped with um, uh mine clearance and armor protection um, to clear all the lanes uh, mm -hmm. at the border of Iraq. And so when everybody got to go on the 20th of March, um, uh, my soldiers uh, were there and uh, clearing the lanes for all the rest of the American forces to come through behind us, um, which include a 10-mile basically buffer zone that both the Americans and the Iraqis had placed after the first Gulf War, um, which was concertina wire and mines and explosives um, and anything and everything in between um, sort of to beef up that border. So we were clearing all that out. And there was probably, um, oh, like maybe um, at least two dozen lanes that we made, and if you can imagine, just major highways through um, this uh, this border crossing. Let me ask you, because you're not the first person we've run into that's kind of was stationed in Kuwait prior to the invasion of Iraq in March of 2003. Did you guys have any idea when it was going to happen, or you were just kind of going day to day, just waiting for a word? Uh, you know, it, it, it all happened so quick, and we kept ourselves so busy that um, there wasn't a point at least in, in, as a company executive officer, now it might've been different for my soldiers that might've been, you know, waiting a little bit more. I was busy the entire time. And before you knew it, it was there. They fed us steak and lobster the night before. Um, and, uh, for, um, at least for our experiences, we knew something might've been around the corner and sure enough, um, uh, we were lined up at the border and four hours before we actually crossed, I was sent to the rear, um, to, uh, draw a hundred body bags, uh, for my company. Um, my company was 120, um, and that's because the expected uh, casualty rates uh, for our unit alone um, was well over 70%. We did not know those numbers, thankfully, at that time, and um, most thankfully, uh, th those numbers did not even uh, occur. So, well, hold on, you got to walk me through this here a minute. So, sure. you're told you're going? Are you told you're going to pick up body bags, or they say just go get this? You know, these items we need you to go get. I mean, were you specifically? Right. That's pretty much. That's okay. pretty much what happened. I went to the rear um, to pick up items and it, several boxes full of bags is what I and I asked them what they were, and they said they're body bags. And so, what's your feeling when you hear this? I mean, uh, definitely a okay. This is a lot different than the first deployment, and um, I better keep. Uh, at least the number that I drew to myself, this is not something that's a good morale boost. Um, but it definitely made you much more aware that this is a whole new ball game. You know, I'm, I'm so like naive and stupid. I would have been like, are these for us or for the enemy? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> we... Yeah, I, I think some of that too, it was, it was like, okay, well, there was that belief of, you know, nothing can happen to us. You know, we're, we're um, you know, the wild, wild west and we're going to take control right. and, and this will just be for all the ones we pick up along the way. Well, I'm just sitting here going, oh, so we're going to kill a hundred people. All right, good. Thanks. All right. right. Good to know. <laughs> Cause I was going to, maybe this isn't enough, you know, maybe we need more right. than these. All right. Well, that's got to be a little bit unnerved. I mean, you didn't tell anybody else. Did you keep that with you by yourself the whole time? You didn't even tell like another officer, another friend? Or right. Anybody? I don't think I, it, I don't think the topic really came up again until probably when we were almost done with deployment and we were going through all items. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I picked some of those up right before the war started. And um, uh, not too many people uh, knew about that. And um, that's crazy. Uh, I could have never kept that a secret. Right. Um, I think that you just get so involved with everything else that's going along that you just, you know, take it and go with it. And you thought, well, I'm not going to need these. This is not going to be a part of my unit. And actually what ended up happening is since then, you know, obviously over a decade later, um, I spoke with a uh, colonel um, who's retired now and her main job in, you know, as G1 in the Army, um, not VG1, but part of the staff was to prepare uh uh, units for backfill. And I mean, alone, they said they had, um, you know, 
uh, dozens and dozens of colonels ready to backfill the expected loss of um, battalion commanders and um, those positions. So you can imagine just the numbers that they thought might occur. You know, they were preparing basically, um, you always want to prepare your best and, and, and be well prepared. So they were ready for a World War II type scenario. That's crazy. I, I can't even... I can't even fathom it because I, I just remember how much relative how ease. It, yeah, and how rel- yes, like 10 exactly. weeks. We're at a- and I think that, that that's what you want. And that's definitely, but you want to be prepared in case it were to go any other direction. We definitely, we're not going to be caught down with our, you know, hands in our pockets. So yeah. it's good. I, in, in some ways, I feel very good about the preparation that went into it, um, at least initially there. I mean, yes, I applaud the preparation, but part of me is just like, there are so many egos and big swinging guys and bravados in these rooms that plan these things that, yes, we expect casualties. But the idea that they were attaching a number and a casualty rate to it before the first shot was even fired to me is almost like it's inconceivable because I just I didn't think that's how they planned. You know, that, that had to come from somebody else on the side going, you know, you might want to think about what happens if this thing goes bad. Right, and thankfully, I, I was not part of that kind of stuff. Okay. So I was, I was grateful for the role I had. Well, uh, can I ask? Did you ever have to open any of those bags? I personally did not. But I mean, your unit did. Yes. Okay. Was that a? I mean, what's that feeling like for you at that point? Um, <clears throat> for our unit itself, it didn't happen till much closer towards the end of the deployment. Um, on that deployment. And um, uh, obviously, as officers, you feel, um, or at least as, as any kind of leader does initially, is that, that, you know, this is, you could have prevented this. There were things, you know, you're second guessing everything you did. Um, uh, and then, of course, the, the human part of it is, you know, this is someone back home that now, you know, a mother has no child. Um, a uh, wife or husband has no spouse. Um, a child has no parent. And uh, that's when reality sets in much, you know, um, not even counting that this is your peer that you just lost. When you look back on it, um, were those moments bigger in kind of what happened to you than you gave them credit for at that moment? Most definitely. Again, you compartmentalize it, you stick it away. You know, it's, it's, you got to move on. You got a mission, you're a leader, you know, you got to take lesson and keep going. And in, when you step back and talk about it, I mean, even just one of these deployments or even a month over in one of these combat zones is enough probably to last a lifetime for anybody um, or much more than you would ask for anybody um, that some of you've been experienced. So, uh, um, uh, Yes, I, I would put it away so that I could go on. But I think in my case specifically, it was the culmination of everything on top of everything on top of everything that kind of brought me to the point on my third deployment where I had so much problem. Well, and everything's cumulative. I don't think we realize it at the time in compartmentalizing everything. It's almost like just pick of, you know, you take one compartment, but then you stack another compartment on top of it and another compartment on top of it. And you keep going on and on and on. Eventually that weight starts to uh, become such a heavy burden that the only way to to let it go is to uncompartmentalize it all. Correct. Yep. All right. So you, you started the mission clearing roads, uh, started the deployment rather clearing roads. So what goes on during the rest of the deployment while you're there? Right. So my company specifically got attached to a, um, uh, Apache helicopter unit. And um, we basically were their ground support. Um, now, being combat heavy engineers, we have lots of resources. We do a lot of different things. We have people that build, you know, structures, and we have plumbers, and we have electricians, and we have um, uh, your basic earth movers, the one that moves dozers and, and can drive just about anything, you know, it, possible. And, uh, and then we have mine clearance. So we have several different, you know, roles that we can play. Um, and uh, uh, so we pretty much played all those. You, you take a handbook um, for what an engineer does, and we did everything. But my company specifically um, uh, would build up hasty bases um, for the Apache helicopters as we moved along. And we also built airfields. My battalion um, as a whole did that, and we sent soldiers off to do that. So we built one of the hasty airfields, the first one, or one of the first ones, um, where they were bringing in, um, taking out the combat wounded and uh, bringing in supplies, um, you know, as the war progressed in that first month um, and a couple of weeks and days even. And it was very fast paced and moving. And there were several times where we all lined up on basically a highway um, in the middle of the night, blackout, blackout um, conditions, so no lights and uh, just driving through dust storms. 
um, and uh, just lined up in a huge, uh, uh, sometimes slow, very slow moving convoy as we, as the, all the forces start moving forward. Did any of this at the time, did it, did it start to become like more than you could bear at any point? Did you, did you realize how much stress you were under? I think at that time, no, um, it's, you're all under adrenaline rush. You're just on autom- automatic pilot. And um, to me, it really didn't start to settle in till the end of that second deployment where, you know, I was, I was, I, I was noticing that I was tired. Um, and when everything kind of settled and we kind of settled on the base and we ended up spending the next um, six or seven months on one base and we would go out and do missions from the base, but the pace really slowed down. And that's kind of where the days dragged on. And I had a lot more time to think about things. And obviously the thinking is, can be helpful, but harmful at the same time. Exactly. You know, there's a catharsis to the moment, but I don't think anybody, as we just talked about, gives, gives any uh, gravity to the overall compound nature of what combat can do to you. Right. And I think that's, you know, what a lot of uh, my peers and uh, soldiers around me have kind of experienced over the years. All right. So the second deployment ends. Um, and you, you get back, um, what's, what's decompression like, and, and, uh, are you just going right back into it? How much time do you have off? I'm kind of just kind of right. trying to get an idea of the pace of what yeah. everything was. So I came home in spring of 2004 and, uh, the, my commitment to the military was going to be up, you know, pretty much in, um, the, the end of the spring in 2005. Um, and I thought, you know, we were pretty much done deploying. I'd already done two. My unit was going to cool its heels for a while. So I started looking towards my options when I would get out um, for the next year. And um, in between that time, I uh, decided to train for an Ironman. I had actually started training, believe it or not, in 2002 in Afghanistan. Uh, funny story. Um, uh, I, I Out of the blue, in 2002, I decided I wanted to do this Ironman so the base was only 50 yards long, um, and uh, there was a swimming pool, a house pool, but it was empty, and all of the electric uh, exercise equipment was broken, so I called back to a bike shop in the States and asked them to send me a bike um, because my own bike was um, obviously in storage and nobody really to get it out. So they shipped the bike to my boss's home in North Carolina, and he was home for a baby being born, and he brought it back on a uh, C-130 in the belly of the aircraft, walked it off and um, set up this red, white, and blue bike fittingly on a trainer, and I started training for that Ironman. It went back in storage in 2003, and then in 2004, I was able to sign up. I ended up doing two Ironmans that year and a marathon, and it was just kind of my way to get back into good shape, back into the college uh, strengths and conditions that I had. And then, you know, on the personal side, the career side, I decided to pursue the FBI, and throughout the rest of the year in 2004 and early 2005, I um, did all the requirements to be accepted into the FBI, and I was, and I actually got a start date at Quantico um, for the summer of 2005, right after my commitment with the Army was going to be up. Um, but things changed. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you real quick. Where did you swim? Did you actually put water in the pool? Uh, no, that was the thing. Like I knew I didn't have to worry about swimming. Um, running obviously needed the most work, but that wasn't going to happen, um, you know, in Afghanistan. So it was the biking where I was just going to look to get my leg strong. So it was really just focusing on getting my biking skills up because that was what was most sco- uh, foreign to me. I really didn't do much biking. Um, so, uh, so yeah, <laughs> just well, a lot of biking on a trainer. I just set the bike up on a trainer and just logged many, many hours and miles on yeah, I mean, I mean that's incredible. Congratulations on the Ironman. I know you did four of them. But that's just a, that's an incredible feat. Um, all right. So what did change? Um, well, uh, my unit uh, uh, got stop loss orders, meaning that obviously they, um, uh, the army didn't have enough manpower um, at that time to fill the ranks of the engineering in my unit. So all of the soldiers um, that were planning on getting out uh, could no longer. Um, uh, get out of the military. They could move on to like uh, more schooling uh, to further their career, but they couldn't get um, out of the unit. Uh, so myself and probably about two or three others were pretty much um, uh, our orders to get out were stopped, and uh, uh, we were given orders to return to Afghanistan in uh, 2005. 
Yeah, we know they were lying about that stop loss stuff because anybody who was in Iraq saw 140,000 people there and half of them weren't doing anything. But that's a whole different right. discussion for a different day. Um, <laughs> you know, generals, I like to have and not need, the need and not have. Right. So, um, but I, I, I just to side note, again, I, I literally, that's how the troop surge there got up to 140,000 soldiers. And literally, you did not need that many. You, you, you didn't even need half that money to do what we needed to do. But uh, anyway, as I said, different discussion. All right, so you get orders to go back to Afghanistan. Are you, at this point, are you angry? Are you upset? What did you tell the FBI? Right. Initially, I was, I was kind of frustrated because, the, you know, I'm someone who plans meticulously and, you know, OCD kind of plans. So this was definitely a disruption. But, I mean, I'd had a lot of disruptions throughout my life um, with changes, and, and you just learn to accept it. So after probably a couple of days of mulling on it, I was like, uh, I'm going to find the good in this. So I, you know, the FBI said, hey, we can pick up your packet, you know, next year when you return, and we'll just, you know, we'll just up your medical, you know, one more time through the medical process, and then we'll send you on to Quantico. Um, when you get back. So I was like, okay, the, the, the career is going to be there when I'm done. Um, and uh, uh, as far as everything else was concerned, you know, again, I, t- I embraced the fact or my, you know, my superiors embraced the fact that I had already done two deployments. Um, I knew a lot of Arabic, um, enough to at least find the bathroom, um, you know, or, or, you know, say hello and goodbye. Um, nothing too fancy, but a couple of keywords to get around. Um, and they, they appreciated that. And so I ran an Arabic uh, school for several of the soldiers before we left. And I taught a lot um, uh, intelligence wise of um, kind of expectations and culture in Afghanistan um, before we got there to the soldiers before we left and uh, set up a lot of scenarios for training. So I definitely felt um, uh, my worth uh, while I was um, training up the soldiers that I was at least being, um, I wasn't just, uh, uh, you know, sitting around waiting um, for an entire year year i or at least for the train up i felt like i was contributing and it was um uh, people were grateful for that contribution all right so you're going back to afghanistan are you going into the same area same province or you're a whole different part right so this uh, time i'm deploying obviously with a unit not um with my own unit and not another so um i uh we went to a totally different province the first time i was in kabul um and this time we're in kandahar and uh, our main uh, mission was to build roads um, between, specifically for like um, uh, the political at the time, try and get people to the polling stations and medical, especially for the women, to get them to um, uh, have medical treatment. Um, so we were building roads between Kandahar and Tarankat. And um, I believe it was 120 kilometers that that road was, uh, if my memory serves correct me, uh, correctly. But um, uh, we were earth movers, and uh, we had the capacity to do that. So that's what our soldiers were doing. All right. And so given all this is going on, um, what is the operational tempo that you have as soon as you hit the ground? So our unit, we pretty much stepped right on in. We had prepared the entire, you know, the three or four months before we got the orders to deploy, um, we were preparing with um, road building capabilities. So we knew what we were going into. We knew what our mission was going to be when we got there. And so we just picked up and started running. Um, as my role as the, the battalion's intelligence officer, I was, um, again, I looked at this as a positive of, you know, this is a good um, train up for my career in the FBI, you know, um, intelligence gathering and understanding that. So I took on um, trying to to get with the infantry battalions and the special forces units and picking their brains about the um, enemy in the area and the culture. Um, and I tried to contribute back to them, you know, information that my soldiers were providing as far as like, you know, if you're providing a service like building a road or, you know, that people are going to get medical service and our medics were also providing medical service. Um, the locals were a lot more, instead of kicking down a door per se, you know, they were a lot more grateful um, initially, at least for our units being there. And so they would come to us with information that we could then turn around and provide to the infantry and the special ops guys, and they could go in and get their targets. Um, So it was a good working relationship with all the units there. So when do things start to, I mean, is is break down, fall apart the right way to, to, to say it for you personally? Right. Yeah. So it, it all happened very quickly. Um, now, mind you, I had been on, obviously, this is my third deployment in uh, four years. Um, I had been on uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of convoys and missions and, um, you know, out to outposts and uh, counters with the enemy, both suicide and um you know, uh, uh, not necessarily bullets flying, um, but like I said, uh, um, it, 
interactions where I've had to talk the enemy down um, and uh, um, uh, mortars going off around us. But um, for whatever reason, um, uh, this this was the culminating point. And I was able, talking with the special ops guys, we were able to put a convoy together um, or get a, a unit with us, an intelligence unit with us from the special ops guys' uh, communications. And they had some, some assets that would be very beneficial to our soldiers on the ground um, who are building the road. It's 120 kilometers long. And um, I popped in. They said, hey, you would be a great resource to be up at Terrancot at this time, and you can brief the other companies that are up there with all the information that you've had. Um, why don't you go up there and join my S2 NCO or my intelligence NCOIC was up there. And so we were also going to be able to have a face-to-face. -face. We hadn't seen each other for a few months and, and sit and talk about some things. Um, so I jumped on the convoy with this commo unit. And um, they had capabilities that were able to pick up radio traffic around us um, of uh, local radio traffic. And on the convoy, um, we started, we had a vehicle breakdown. And so the, tr the convoy kind of came to a, a halt. And um, during, while we were waiting for that vehicle to be fixed, um, we started picking up local radio traffic and chatter where basically the interpreter with us, he was, you know, relaying it uh, a lot easier than I could about what was being discussed. And there was somebody on the radio, a, a leader saying, you know, uh, get in your position, prepare yourself. Um, uh, the Americans are coming, uh, get ready to do your mission. You better be ready. Um, you know, God be with you uh, or Allah be with you. And, um, uh, so everybody in the vehicle, our you know senses uh, obviously picked up. Uh, we relayed the information to the rest of the soldiers in the convoy, and um, uh, we obviously were very uh, much more aware of our surroundings and looking out for what was going on. Um, we continued the convoy on. I was not the convoy commander, but we continued on further, and um, uh, we came up to a guard shack, and the guy is waving his arms frantically. And so our interpreter and the gentleman in the vehicle uh, run up there to talk um, to the to the uh, soldier and uh, the interpreters as well, waving his arms around. So we, you know, we still think that there's something pretty, pretty, um, uh, something could be going on around us. And uh, they come back and the interpreter quickly says, hey, you know, it was just the local guard manager telling his guards, Afghani guards, to be ready and to wake up and to be ready for the Americans to come. So they, so we look like we're doing our job. Um, and so all of that moment of um, tension and stress, you know, everybody else just huge sigh of relief. Um, and myself, I couldn't talk myself down. Uh, and I just shut down. And it for a simple convoy and a simple radio conversation, but I just couldn't talk myself out of it. And at that moment in time, um, I suddenly became no longer effective. I was quiet. I was scared. I was paranoid. And um, I could no longer lead, you know, the soldiers around me or even effectively communicate with the soldiers around me. And uh, that pretty much is where my troubles began. So, I mean, can you remember people trying to interact with you at that moment or asking you, are you okay? What's wrong? I mean, can you describe any of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, clear as day. I remember everything. Um, it wasn't like I blacked out or um, was physically unable to move. I just was, you know, mentally unable to bring the paranoia out from around me. And, uh, you know, obviously the soldiers around me were concerned. The commo guys from the special ops units were definitely, um, they could pick up on something. Um, they'd obviously been in, you know, a few more um, uh, uh, scenarios than, or at least um, uh, dire scenarios than some of my soldiers had. And, and they could even pick up on it and were very cautious and brought me when we got up to the base in uh, Terrancot. They took me to my NCOIC and um, to my uh, commander up there, who was my XO at the time. And um, you know, they could see that something was wrong. I wasn't as communicative. I wasn't my happy-go-lucky self. I was just very quiet. And they turned around and uh, just kind of kept a close eye on me. Um, I tried to shake it off that night. I didn't sleep at all. And uh, my mind was just racing and I just felt like a failure. I felt everything you could possibly imagine. Just scenarios were running through my mind as to what, you know, what, why couldn't I, um, why was I being such a poor leader at this moment? And what had I done wrong? Even though nothing had happened, my mind was just running every scenario. Um, 
I tried to go out on the next mission where we actually went down to the road project and the communication guys set up all their equipment um, to pick up any uh, chatter or do anything else that they needed to do to relay back to their guys. And um, at that point, I just pretty much, I was ineffective. I stood out or I, I, you know, pointed my weapon outside the window and I pretty much was right along. And um, I wasn't effective either as a leader or even as a soldier at that point. Um, and uh, uh, when they brought me back to base that evening, uh, my uh, battalion commander was standing there and he asked me for my weapon um, at that point. Any feelings of embarrassment? Such, I mean, even to this day, um, you know, doubt, self-doubt and uh, embarrassment. Like this was, um, you know, to everyone, you know, who had been around me and even to all my scenarios, or all my different deployments, that this was something that, you know, um, this was not something that should happen. Um, and uh, I, I felt like a total failure. Total failure. Yeah. When your battalion commander asked for your weapon, was that a wake-up call? Was it like, what was going through your head? I think at that point, I almost was down, like, th this was going to happen. Um, I, uh, I just kind of knew, I knew that I was no longer effective. I knew that everybody was worried about me. I knew that I couldn't snap out of it. And, uh, there was a lot of people concerned. And, uh, so, so, um, I think at that point it was inevitable. I was just waiting for when it was going to happen. So where do they send you next? So at that point they took me, I was down in, um, we took a convoy, a quick convoy back down to Kandahar and in Kandahar, they took me to the medic tent and uh, they just put an IV on me and watched me for 24 hours. They were hoping it was, you know, dehydration. Um, they had me go see a psych doc, um, but he wasn't, uh, you know, it did just, I was quiet. I didn't really have much conversation with him. I was just, again, scared and paranoid. Um, and, uh, but my unit was very um, uh, concerned for me and they actually took all of the um, officers that were back, you know, in the battalion area and uh, they put them on a schedule and um, every two or three hours they switched them out to be at my side in the hospital. And then when I got sent back to my um, uh, room, uh, we were living in trailers at that point. Um, they, they had an officer from my battalion with me 24 seven and they just sat by my side. I Did that really make you feel better or worse? Um, I think at that point, again, I was indifferent. It, you know, looking back at it, at it now, um, I, I think I, I would be very grateful that they took that much of a concern to stay with me and to make me not feel alone um, and that they cared. You know, they were there for me. Um, they knew that this was not me. And um, uh, uh, so um, it, but again, I was, I think, again, more embarrassed and quiet and just couldn't understand why this was happening uh, to me. Um, and uh, uh, I still remember one of the uh, officers handed me a four leaf clover and he said, uh, this is, you know, why don't you hang on to this for a while? And I kept that actually for like two or three years until I saw him again and passed it back. But, um, you know, the, the soldiers all signed a card. They made a card and um, my uh, my S2 office, my intelligence office all signed it and sent it over there. Um, and uh, at that point, they decided I wasn't snapping out of it and I needed to be brought out of country. So they put me on a C-130 and right alongside the guys on cots that were screaming and, um, you know, hurting obviously from bullet wounds and, and legs being blown off. And here I was taking a cot, just laying quietly um, with a nurse at my side, watching me uh, while we flew to Germany. Okay. Um, when, when you're on that flight back and you see everybody who has the actual physical wounds and yours right. aren't physical, does that make you feel worse? Much worse. And why am I laying on a cot um, and how unworthy I am of all of this medical attention? Um, uh, you know, again, like taking up valuable space for somebody that else that may need it. Um, and uh, my, running through my thoughts the whole time. And uh, just, again, more of um, devastation that this is where I'm at at this point that I'm not with my soldiers, that I've failed, um, that I couldn't hack it. Um, you know, uh, uh, just total utter failure on my part and, um, just quietly laid there. And, uh, when actually, when we got to Germany, I insisted on stepping off the cot and walking off the plane, um, much to the, uh, fear of, uh, my nurse who was assigned to me, he came chasing after me and tried to get me to lay back on the cot, but I just, I, I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't physically wounded and they didn't need to carry me off that airplane. 
All right. So when you get to Germany, what's what's happening next now? I mean, do you uh, right. do you understand the scope of where you are right now? I did, uh, not entirely. Um, I think, uh, uh, you know, I didn't I didn't know a psych ward existed. Um, you know, other than seeing them in the movies, so they really were foreign to me. Um, so there was a sense of, you know, again with the paranoia, like an anticipation. Like I'm being taken somewhere where they're actually going to say I did a good job and, you know, my mission is over and it's time for me to move on with my life. Um, but that next uh, job was um, basically they opened the door to the psych ward. And at that point, um, the uh, uh, nurse that was with me on the flight left and then I was the doors closed behind me and locked behind me. And I found myself in the middle of this psych ward in Germany on the military base in Landstuhl. And um, uh, in a whole a whole new world. What's that emotion when those doors close? <laughs> Can you still hear like, the sound of it? Oh, every time. And, and that's one of the things, believe it or not, as I go now and talk to groups and talk to people that even design psych wards um, to, you know, look at the surroundings and what you're doing. And, and if anything, you know, let's not make this feel like a prison. Um, which to me, it definitely, it, that was my first impression. In fact, the uh, ward in Germany um, at the time, uh, it had a, um, it had a, a, a break area where, you know, you could go and, and play uh, basketball with a hoop and um, with a net and a ball and uh, some picnic tables. And um, the, the soldiers would go out there, the patients themselves would go out there and smoke cigarettes. Um, but uh, it was on a rooftop deck and it was surrounded by concertina wire. And, you know, obviously it was to keep people from jumping off the deck. But to me, it, it was the definition of I am I have lost all rights. I am a prisoner, you know, in essence of my own mind. But I am a prisoner in this building um, uh, in, instead of like maybe a patient trying to heal. Oh, man. Because I, I, everybody right now who's listening to this, who's never been inside a psych ward, is just thinking of what you see on TV. And so, yes, it feels like white walls, padded walls, prison, you know, uh, and, and the dreariness and drabness and, and just the sadness of everything that's inside there. I, did you feel like you weren't going to get better? Um, I think if anything, like I, at that moment in time when they first closed the door, um, it was just a new world. It was like what it, it, my world just collapsed. I was like, I have, you know, every all of my hopes and dreams just got washed away. You know, um, any kind of career I hope to have with the FBI is gone. Any kind of career with the military is gone. Um, you know, how can I look at my family with pride um, having to serve the military? I was now locked basically in a prison. And to me, I was like now a prisoner and that I had just failed. And everything that life could offer, um, I was now a failure. So at that moment in time, I didn't see um, any different scenario except what was exactly in front of me at that time. Um it didn't help the situation that um, I was surrounded. Um, it was all male, uh, all male soldiers. Now, granted, I'm, I come from the military. You know, every unit I've been in, I, there was, you know, hardly ever any females. Um, and obviously in war, you share foxholes with males and, you know, uh, you've seen everything. It just kind of happens when you, you know, cohabitate and it's expected. But again, when you're in a hospital and you're out of the combat zone and you're in essence out of that military mindset, you would hope to have a little bit more privacy and, um, you know, get better. And in that case, I was, I was not afforded that. And they just really didn't have the, um, facilities for that at the time. And, um, uh, I lost all rank. I lost, they would, they took my hair ties. They took my boot laces and I was the only soldier from combat. So I was still in my combat, you know, DCUs, desert uniform. All the other patients were in robes um, and, uh, and, or green, you know, uniforms uh, back then, you know, we had the dark green, yeah, right. The BDUs. Um, And uh, so I was an anomaly. And the doctors were confused as to why I was there. You know, I got drilled daily on, um, you know, what drugs was I on? Obviously, opiates were really high um, in the area in Afghanistan. And we even had some soldiers in our unit have problems, obviously, drug problems while we were there because it was so readily available. And um, uh, was I pregnant and making, you know, it up? Was I trying to get out of combat? Was I pretending to be, you know, sick? Um, I got anything and everything. And um, I, I... so I even doubted myself. I was like, yes, uh, it, this is, you know, 
uh, I have, again, I've failed. Um, something must be wrong with me, but it's nothing that could be, um, uh, it's nothing that was a result of combat is what I was told initially as well. Um, Carolyn, at uh, what point in time do you talk to your parents? Like, do you tell your mother? I mean, how did that conversation go? So actually it was an appointment the following morning with a doctor. The doctor said, Hey, have you talked to your family yet? And I said, no. And they said, um, well, uh, let's call your family. And it was, I think two in the morning back in the States. And uh, I was like, it, it, at that point it was even, I hadn't even crossed my mind to call them. If anything, I was embarrassed and scared and, um, I didn't want to talk to them. But after he had mentioned that, I was like, Oh yeah, I want to talk to him. He goes, well, it's two. We can wait till later. I was like, no, no, no. My mom will be up. She always wakes up. Um, and she'll be grateful for my call. And so they called and I got to talk to her very briefly, you know, sitting there in the doctor's office, no privacy. Um, and, uh, uh, she, of course, you know, I was told later bolted out of bed and freaked out and, um, uh, uh just was waiting for that call. Just didn't realize it would be a call like that, but, um, it, the whole family was, was definitely worried. All right. So how long are you inside the psych ward? All right. So believe it or not, within three days, I was back to myself. I had snapped out of it, uh, whatever kind of shell shock it was, and I was begging to rejoin my soldiers back in Afghanistan. You know, I was I was not broken. I did not have a mental illness. This is not how my Army career was going to end. Send me back in. Um, I'm fine. But uh, obviously, after all that had happened, they were not ready to do that. So I stayed in Germany for two more weeks, and they observed me on that ward. And then they sent me back um, uh, through the military transportation system with the patient system where basically you're just, you know, a number categorized based on the severity of your illness, um, for when you can catch a flight. Um, and I had to cool my heels on the psych ward during that time. And, um, so, uh, <clears throat> I caught the flight back to Walter Reed and then in Walter Reed, there was a fresh new set of doctors and they wanted to observe me. Um, so initially it was supposed to be for about two weeks. Um, and then it, uh, they just, uh, they were curious. So they observed me, you know, a little bit longer and, um, I was back to my normal self now. And, uh, uh totally, if you can imagine now uh, back into my leadership role, my officer role, you know, trying to take care of the other patients on the ward, making sure they have good, you know, services and that, you know, um, uh, we can go out and do physical training time, just anything and everything to occupy the time while I'm waiting for these doctors to, um, you know, make their decisions. So they finally, after about three or four weeks, got me on a flight to Fort Lewis, Washington. Again, I'm on the medical system flight. So I'm waiting just a number in line as to when I can hop on to that, you know, space available. Um, and, uh, so I get back to Fort Lewis and again, I'm going through the, the system. So I have to, uh, you know, go through the psych ward at Fort Lewis before they release me. And then I'm released to, um, a, uh, family friend. And, um, so that was probably about six, seven weeks after it initially happened. And I cooled my heels at Fort Lewis for four months, enough for them to discharge all medications that I was on, everybody to give me a clean bill of health, say I was fine. And they, um, uh, much to my um, uh, request, they sent me back to my unit in Afghanistan. So I got to rejoin them in uh, September of uh, 2005. Wow. Um, and so right. <laughs> when, when does your unit return back home? Uh, they were still there. Um, they, they were spending, it was an entire year long deployment. So we had left in, I guess, um, uh, uh, March, I think is when we had gone March or April. And, um, so I was there through about, uh, June or July, about two months in country, came home for about four months. Um, and then rejoined them in September and um, they were there until April of 2006. Uh, gee, that's funny. That's when I left the first time. That's weird. Um, <laughs> so how critical was that to your recovery that you got to go back and finish? To me, it was a sense of accomplishment that, um, or at least I tried to finish. It was, I, um, you know, I can beat this See, I don't really have a mental illness because they had told me that there's no way that, you know, some of the doctors that there's no way that war did this to me, that this was not a result of anything <laughs> traumatic. I didn't have PTSD. I didn't have any of that, that this was solely my makeup, that, that I had a I must have had a history of mental illness. I must have had a family history of mental illness, um, that that was why all of this happened to me. 
And um, it, it just, nobody in my family bought it. I didn't buy it. You know, the doctors eventually said, yeah, that, that can't be it. Um, it was just a fluke. You were dehydrated. Um, you know, it, it only lasted three days, but nobody really understood what it, what it was. We called it, they called it brief reactive psychosis. Um, and it was done. And I lived four months without anything happening and off the medicine um, or any of the psych psychiatric medicines they let me return um and i was good for about uh, three more months and then in december um this time with with not a stressful situation at all i suddenly found myself back into the same valley in my mind i was back in that valley again on that convoy and i i was again locked in um and i was no longer effective and even though when i went back for that uh, return trip to my unit in afghanistan they didn't put me back in the intelligence role they put me in a supply shop um and uh so i was um, pushing bullets and uh, uh but it had happened again i didn't even leave the wire but i just um i shut down and so this time they quickly uh evacuated me out medevaced me out, got me to Germany, uh, spent a couple of days there, got me to Walter Reed, and then I ended up cooling my heels at Walter Reed while they medically processed me out of the military. Were you broken ordered at that? Absolutely. I mean, this was, you know, I wanted to get out of the military, but not this way. This was, you know, so embarrassing. I got an honorable discharge, but to me, it was just a, you know, a failure. Um, and uh, <clears throat> it was, um, uh, but now I had this on my record, um, I could no longer, in my mind, I could no longer apply for the FBI. Um, but it also was a, 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 for me, it was a opportunity to, um, you know, uh, show everybody that they were wrong. You know, I didn't have a mental illness, so I was going to prove that I could do this same job. So I signed up uh, with a company, uh, Raytheon, um, and uh, we did um, engineering and intelligence work, and I kept my top secret clearance. I disclosed everything that had happened to me, um, my security clearance records, and got approved for um, you know, keeping my uh, clearance. So I went on and um, uh, moved to Washington, D.C., and started doing the exact same thing in the engineering and intelligence role, but at a desk. Um, uh, but still doing all the analysis and the reports and the reverse engineering um, that I had done in the military. Now, part of me feels like because PTSD wasn't something we talked about in 2005 and it was a stigma, and even to this day it's still a stigma, but you know, it just wasn't something that we ever bothered to lend any credibility to. Um, so I, I, I almost kind of get the reaction of the doctors at that point in time. Obviously, we know right. we've learned a lot more about it and, and what it can do, but what is the actual diagnosis? Do, do, do we know? Do you know? Well, so, um, well, this is kind of probably what brings me to the point that I'm actually talking to you today is um, I then, you know, after I got out, I went on to D.C. and I tried to do this on the outside world without all the stressful bullets flying over you and mortars blowing up and losing your comrades, you know, um, you know, face to face. Uh, I, had, you know, left all that behind and everybody thought I was fine, but um, it reoccurred and it and it would reoccur again and again where I would be absolutely fine and then shut down um, and not sometimes with a stressful event and sometimes without a stressful event. And I would be locked in is what I called my episodes where I just couldn't communicate effectively. I was paranoid and I was very quiet. I didn't have the typical rage that presented with PTSD. Um, I was medically discharged from the military with a diagnosis of PTSD. Um, but they probably went through 10 different diagnoses over the years. And actually, it was a decades long journey of um, trying to figure out what it was. And um, I happened upon, you know, a, uh, a nurse practitioner in the VA that took a very strong interest to my case. And um, uh, she uh, um, attended a continuing edu education lecture and um, at her lunch hour. And it was taught by a doctor named Rafat El Malik. And uh, he basically um, uh, is world renowned, very respected. And uh, she... Um, uh, she says he even has groupies. Um, but anyhow, she said that, you know, uh, um, she thought he would be interested in my case because nobody could say what it was. Um, again, it didn't present, you know, over the years, it didn't present, you know, the typical symptoms of PTSD. It didn't fall into any category. Eventually, towards the end of it, they called it um, uh, uh, NOS or not otherwise psychosis, not otherwise specified. They just didn't know. And the medications they used didn't help or stop the symptoms. And they actually, you know, supplied me the same medication year after year after year, provider after provider, because the provider before them had used it. 
Um, and I had tried every technique possible, but they just couldn't figure out what it was or how to stop the symptoms. Um, and, uh, she said that this doctor might be interested in my case. So she told me to reach out to him. And um, he was a doctor at the hospital where I worked as a physical therapist. Um, after I got out of the military, I had actually gone back to school. Um, and the vocational rehab program supported the efforts. And I became, I got a doctor in physical therapy. And um, I was practicing at University of Louisville. I still am today. And I went to this, um, I, I wrote him a letter, bottom line up front. You know, we all know how important people's time is. And so I summarized everything I could um, as concisely as I could in one page. And I dropped this letter off at his office at noon, and he called me on my personal cell phone, um, on his personal cell phone at 6 o'clock that night, um, and it all came to an end. And he said, I know what this diagnosis is, but better yet, there is a medication when it is dosed correctly that can treat it. Um, and now I am four years later without having these episodes that have literally stopped my life just about every year or every other year. Um, and, uh, I am now able to, you know, hold a job and, um, raise my family. And, uh, uh, and now I, I travel the country, uh, talking about this, talking about this diagnosis. He wrote a research paper that got uh, published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, um, on the topic. And it's called, um, uh, 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 uh it, it's basically, um, the name for it is cycloid psychosis. And it's um, the medication he uh, prescribed uh, or suggested my VA provider subscribed is Lamictal, which is a medication that's used for seizures. And it's been used in the psychiatric world for a long time. But the dosage that he talks about is outside of um, necessarily what the drug company that created it um, suggested to the um, FDA and uh, because UofL is a research hospital and VA is a research hospital and they were able to provide the research behind why a different dosage would be effective, um, they were able to get approval for it. And I have now been four years symptom-free. Well, congratulations. I mean, that's beautiful. Um, Thank you. And you actually wrote a book about it and it's called Locked In, A Soldier and Civilian Struggle with Invisible Wounds. So you guys can pick that up if you want to get all uh, of uh, the finite details of Carolyn's story, but and I do appreciate the cover of the book, the uh, the boots without the shoelaces in them. Given everything you told me, it's it's appropriate that uh, that that was the symbol you used on the on the cover of your book. So again, it's called Locked In: A Soldier and Civilian Struggle with Invisible Wounds. So when you look back on everything, Carolyn, where are you? Like, I mean, this is obviously a journey, right? It's not a destination, right. but you know, what stands out to you about the journey? I think, uh, you know, first and foremost, I have had people around me that have supported me, you know, time and time again. Um, and I, I realize that I am, you know, an anomaly a lot of times in that case where, um, uh, you know, I've had a lot of people who have just been there for me and who have made sure that I wouldn't give up. But I think also, most importantly, I didn't push them away. Um, you know, all too often we, we you know, push those loved ones away because we don't want to burden them or bother them. Um, but I, uh, I, you know, humbly accepted their help and, and let somebody else take control. And, um, you know, I, I have a loving husband and two boys that are wild and crazy. Um, but, uh, they're by my side and they support me. Um, uh, I think as well, uh, basically a, a never give up attitude. I think I've kind of lived my life that way. Um, where I just, you know, if one door closes, I'll find another one that's open or even a window to crawl through. Um, I'm not going to let anybody else decide the kind of life I'm going to live. And I'm going to, you know, try and live life to the fullest. If you could go back right now and tell that younger Carolyn Furdeck after that first episode, that first time you got locked in happened, what would you say to her? Well, I've never been asked that before. Um, you know, I think that if anything, that it, you just need to take a break. You need to sit back and cool your heels. And as much as you want to just go forward and move on as if nothing had happened, um, you, this was pretty serious. And this is defining in your life. And uh, if somebody's trying to tell you something, somebody's trying to basically, you know, whatever your beliefs are, somebody upstairs is saying, is your mind, this is enough. You, you need to slow down. Do you think that because of who you were, and the way you were made up and that attitude of always going forward, 
almost was it ended up being a debilitating thing as you almost were in a struggle with yourself that you could go forward and your mind was telling you don't go forward kind of deal right i think in those in that initial that return the once return to go to the deployment that definitely was a factor um uh, I just needed to slow down. But in this case, my drive to want to prove to everybody and, uh, you know, and probably prove to myself that I was fine. Um, it just got me into, uh, you know, a little bit more trouble the second time. Well, Carolyn, listen, I, I know that your journey is one. And even if, uh, you know, you are a, a person who can say you're, quote, cured, obviously, uh, I would assume that this still is a uh, your past is still part of who you are every day. Even if you don't have locked in anymore and it's not part of your everyday life, uh, I know that it has never escaped you. And for that, I, I wish you nothing but blessings and, and continued good luck as you continue to live your life the way you want to on your own terms. But also, it's a great, it's a great inspiration to all of us, uh, and especially those who are more commonly struggling with PTSD, that, that there is help out there and there, there is a solution and that there is a way uh, and, and even though it doesn't seem it at times and it seems very dark and I'm sure you had very, very dark moments, but, um, that there is a, a path forward, correct? Yeah. Um, you know, I always, uh, when I talk to people, I, you know what, everybody struggles with something and it is okay to talk about it. It is okay to seek help. Um, you know, be humble and, you know, accept, swallow your pride and accept that help. Uh, we're not, superheroes we're human um and uh it's okay to not be okay as somebody else has said before carolyn Ferdig, it's an amazing story again nothing but continued success and all the blessings to you and your family thank you so much for sharing your story and continuing to be a mental health advocate but uh, we certainly appreciate your time thank you thank you very much for having me on carolyn Ferdig, thanks for being part of the hazard ground thank you you've been listening to the hazard ground podcast Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.